We'll go ahead and get started. Randy kind of eats into my time. I'm going to have to send him a, a message on that or talk to him about that a little bit. Looking at some of our praise songs today, we're talking about praise his name forevermore. And for endless days, we'll sing his praise. Think about the concept of eternity. It is extremely hard for the human mind to grasp and understand. But we have to think about it anyway because it's constantly mentioned. So when we think about eternity, like for endless days we'll sing his praise. For glory, how glorious that will be. How satisfying that will be. Let's go ahead and uh, start in prayer. And then we'll get started in today's lesson. Dear Lord, we thank you for this time we can have. How precious is your name. How precious is your word. How precious is your son. How precious is the Holy Spirit. We pray that we would cling to those. uh, To you. And not cling to the things of this world. As we learn today, how rich your word is, how rich your promises are, and how rich you are. We ask that we would see that. Please open up our minds and our hearts so that we can grasp what you are telling us through your word. We pray this in your name. Amen. I'm going to start today by just saying a couple things. Um, Again, we're going through Ephesians, this book called Be Rich. I really would encourage you to go ahead and buy that I'm sure you can get it on CBD or at Crossroads. It's written by Warren Worsby, and he does give me an outline, which is nice to have um, when I kind of go on through this in the book of Ephesians. But I'm going to start out today by saying one of our favorite pastimes, and again, I've told you a thousand times that I grew up on a farm, very busy, sports, this, that, whatever, but once in a while we found a little downtime to be mischievous, if you can imagine that. So I was a last of five kids. Mom and you know, mom taught school, dad was on the farm. You know, there's a fair amount of unsupervised time going on there, whether it's in the barn or not much time in the house. Um, I did have a TV when I was a kid, but it broke. I think my dad broke it on purpose because if you're watching TV, guess what you're not doing? You're not working. And that was the ultimate job of kids. My dad said you never have more cows than your kids can milk. That was his goal. So we did a lot of work, but we found some time to be mischievous. One of the things we did, believe it or not, some of you did this, right? It was called prank phone calls. So you had to be very thoughtful about how you did this. Now, we had a party line back then at the beginning of my life, and the party line was if the phone rang in your house, it also rang at ski steads, flaters, and leck lighteners. And, but your phone was a distinct ring, so you know someone was calling you, but it also gave those other three houses opportunity to very carefully eavesdrop, you know, that type of deal, right? Which we all did. So you had to be careful about when you did the prank phone calls, but you also had to be very strategic, okay? So it would go something along the lines of this. My brother Bob and I would be sitting there thinking of something to do because we had 20 minutes or whatever. Usually this happened out in the milk house in in the office in the barn. And it would kind of go like this. You'd find somebody in the phone book that you knew kind of, but they maybe knew you but didn't know your voice, maybe your neighbor two miles away or whatever. Maybe it's Mrs. Geezy. I don't know. Maybe it's the Johnsons. I don't know. But you'd, you'd say, okay, so my brother Bob, he'd, he'd, have a, he'd, he'd 
you know, disguise his voice, right? He call up, and you can't just come out with a prank phone call right away. You have to set it up. The key is the setup. So you call them, and they answer the phone. My brother Bob would go, <clears throat> uh, this is Frank from Jump River Electric. So you had to see the setup there, Frank from Jump River Electric. So they had it sounded serious, right? This is Frank from Jump River Electric, and we're just checking out some electricity issues. Is your refrigerator running? So if you just came out and said, is your refrigerator running? They might know, pick up on that, right? But if you, if you let it with that line, you might get them to say yes. And here's the key part, the fun part, is the exclamation point. You yell on the phone, why don't you go catch it? <laughs> like that, right? So then we laugh and laugh and laugh and then think, okay, who do we call next, right? Well, that wasn't the only one we called to see if Joel Wall was there. Hi, is Joel Wall there? No. Nope. Uh, how about his brother Steve? Steve Wall there? Nope. Any of the walls there? Nope. What holds up your roof? <laughs> you hang up that again. So you kind of do all those things, right? But the best one is when you call either the grocery store or the convenience store. I didn't chew tobacco. I tried it once. I'll just be honest. I was probably in eighth grade. My friend told me to do it. But back then, you had Copenhagen, you had Skoll, and you had this kind called Prince Edward. And you could either have it in a pouch or a can, a tin can, right? So everybody in northern Wisconsin, all the boys who were in high school and older, wore jeans, and you had that round, circular, Paul Vandenberg, you know exactly what I'm talking about, that round, circular uh, tin can of snuff they'd put in their back pocket and ring, wear a ring right in their pants. You knew exactly where their can of snuff was, right? So you had Prince Edward, which was a type of tobacco, and you could get it in the pouch or the can. So you'd call the grocery store and say, do you have Prince Edward in the can? Of course, they'd say yes. You'd say, why don't you let him out? (laughs) You know, like that or something. So we had all kinds of fun with that. But then you waited for someone to call you. This was the fun part. I don't know how many times we got a call. Answer the phone, ring. Hi, is John Deere there? We lived in a, you know, a whole agriculture area, John Deere. So then you got privy to that. You say, okay, I'm waiting for the next guy to call. Sure enough, he calls. John Deere there? No, but his friend Massey Ferguson is here. Then you hang up on him, right? Or Alice Chalmers, right? You hang up on that. We got called for is Phil Silo, Saul Manure, all kinds of things, right? Well, when I went to college, a friend of mine named Steve took this to a whole new level. Whole new level. So I was in Marshall, Minnesota, and barely we had the, what was called High V. And at that time, you had what's called the Hy-Vee Trader. It's a free deal. You could advertise in it. It came out once a week. Just this pamphlet, this book, you know, a bunch of pages. And you could advertise babysitting, something to sell, whatever. I advertise in there for my painting services. I paint in the summertime. So you had the Hy-Vee Trader, right? Well, our friend Steve, I was a junior in college. My roommate was Doug. So Steve would come over on Thursday night about 730 he usually had a beer or two in him by then, so he comes over and he says, hey, you want to have some fun? Sure. So he would look up in the Marshall phone book, anybody that, usually look for older names, like Margaret or something like that, so it would be someone maybe a little bit more elderly. He'd say, watch this. So he would call him up, and he'd say, uh, hi, this is Bob, and um, I'm, uh, I'm um, responding to your ad in the High V Trader for a 10-speed Schwinn bike for sale. It was just some random number. There's no advertisement right over Say, no, uh, well, you got the wrong number. Well, is this 507-532-3675? Well, yes, it is. That's the number that's on here right here. It says you have a 10-speed Schwinn bike for sale. You're telling me you don't have that? No, we don't have that. Do you have a bike? <laughs> uh, uh, yes, I have a bike. Would you sell it? How much would you sell your bike for? And he, the whole idea was to keep him on the line as long as... And Doug and I are sitting in the background there in the, in the couch, 
and just splitting aside, we're laughing. So, so we just see how long Steve could keep this guy on the phone. And it was, it, was, it was a pastime, obviously we did. But then once in a while you get somebody like this, whether it was at home or with Steve here, once in a while you start to get into your little deal and someone says, who is this? Kind of like that more serious response, that tone, that demeanor. And you felt like as you're pulling the prank, like, I'm going to get caught, right? So you carefully hang up the phone, right? And then, or who is this? Or, you know, who are you? Kind of like that accusational tone, right? Who are you? Who is this? Like, I'm going to get you, right? Or something like that. Quit calling me or whatever. So the question became, who is this? Who are you? Well, if we take those questions, who is this and who are you, that is addressed in Scripture endlessly. In James, in James, talks about a man looking in the mirror and walking away and forgetting who he is. Do you ever look in the mirror and just take a good, strong look? There's nobody home, so you got a little time. You look in the mirror and say, who are you? Who is this? What are you about? Who is this? Who are you? Are questions that Paul and other writers of the New Testament are addressing in each one of their letters. They write in the New Testament. Who are you? And who is this Jesus, by the way, as well? So probably no better dialogue than John the Baptist with some of his detractors. Starting in John chapter 1, verse 19, I'll just go ahead and read this. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, here's the question, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. Notice how he identifies who he's not first before he identifies who he is. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Check number two. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? The key question, who is this? Who are you? And why are they asking this question? Because John the Baptist is making a commotion. He's baptizing people. He's preaching. Obviously, if these people are sent from Jerusalem, they've heard of him. And so these people who come to John, the priests and Levites, are on a mission, whether it's for bad sake or not, who are you? Can you identify yourself? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, and this is where he identifies himself, through the prophet Isaiah, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. There, he identifies himself. He's basically saying, if you read the Old Testament, specifically the book of Isaiah, you will read about me. And here I am. I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, 
as the prophet Isaiah said. That's who John the Baptist says he is, and that's exactly who he is. Identified by scripture in the book of Isaiah. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing? If you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet, now they're really getting after him. John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. So they weren't satisfied with that answer. So, okay, and then why, so instead of like looking this up intently, they say, then why are you baptizing? And, behold, and, and the next verse identifies Jesus and who he is in a very short snippet here. Verse 29, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him. He knew who Jesus was and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This, of, this is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. So identifies who he is, number one, and what he's there for. Identity and purpose. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's what Jesus is here for. This is why we study him. He is here to take away the sins of the world. Why is that so important? One more reference from a a verse we read last week. 1 Timothy 1.15, again, this scene is trustworthy and deserving of all acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Last week we went into why Paul was considered him first and foremost. He was a blasphemer. He was a persecutor. Uh, he was um, an insolent opponent, right? But he's saying about Jesus here, it came into the world to save sinners. There's that word, idea and uh, verbiage again about Jesus is here to save sinners. In other words, in other words, the forgiveness of sins. That's what the lamb is here for. That's why he's identifying. Well, how important is the forgiveness of sins? Well, in 1943, most of you were not alive then, there was a guy named Abraham Maslow who created this pyramid was called the hierarchy of needs of mankind. And on that pyramid, you had the base, and then the next layer, and the next layer, and the next layer, next layer. And this is what Abraham Maslow, a psychologist, came up with. So the very base, the very bottom of this pyramid is physiological. Breathing, food, shelter, clothing, and sleep. I crave all those. Okay? Next layer. And the thing is, his idea was you couldn't achieve layer number two unless you had layer number one. So if you're not meeting layer number one, you don't think about layer number two. That's what his, that's what his thoughts were. Layer number two, safety and security. Health, employment, property, 
family, social ability. Health, employment, property, family, social ability. That is safety and security. Physiological, safety and security, we'll move up the ladder. Love and belonging. Friendship. Family. Intimacy. Sense of connection. Okay? You can see they go from more basic to more intense emotional needs possibly, right? Physiological, safety and security, um, love and belonging. Here's the next one. Anyone want to guess? Self-esteem. Confidence, achievement, respect of others. We all desire those. Just keep going. And the very tip of the pyramid, this is what he comes up with, because he cannot, probably a secularist, right, not in tune with God's word or not a believer, comes up with this verbiage, self-actualization. Morality, creativity, acceptance, experience purpose. So we have physiological, we have safety and security, we have love and belonging, we have self-esteem, and we have the very tip, self-actualization. What's missing? This is a psychologist. These are the needs of man. Boy, if we get all these layers, you are just a wholly complete person, right? Wrong answer. Man's greatest need is forgiveness. Forgiveness of sins connected to the God who created us. That's our greatest need, is the forgiveness of sin. So when, so when John the Baptist says, Behold, here comes the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, that is like identifier, identifier, identifier. Right? It is like huge. No one else has the capacity or the ability to do so. Only Jesus provides that. And that's exactly how John identified him. We'll use that to start talking about how Paul expresses to us how rich we are in that forgiveness and that connection to our Lord. Ephesians 1 through 1, 1 through 14, with an emphasis on 4 through 14. We went emphasized 1 through 3 last week. And think about the words, how rich you are, when we go through this. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, of Christ Jesus, sorry, by the will of God, we talked about that last week, to the saints, we talked about who saints were, who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Again, we talked about that. Grace to you and peace from our God and Father, and our Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through uh, Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, 
according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ is a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. That bank account is full. Full, full, full. That's what basically that Paul is trying to get across here. Okay? Our, the author of our book expands on that. One of the funniest cartoons I've ever showed a pompous lawyer reading a client's last will and testament to a group of greedy relatives. The caption read, I, John Jones, being of sound mind and body, spent it all. When Jesus Christ wrote his last will and testament for his church, he made it possible for us to share his spiritual riches. There's the emphasis in uh, verses 1 through 14. Instead of spending it all, Jesus Christ paid it all. Think about that concept. His death on the cross and his resurrection made possible our salvation. He wrote us into his will, then he died so that the will be in force. Then he rose again that he might become the heavenly advocate, i.e. the lawyer, to make sure the terms of the will were correctly followed. In this long sentence, Paul named just a few of these things that make up our spiritual wealth. There's, there's the author's uh, take on how rich you are and the fullness of the richness that Paul is talking about from the Ephesians here. Okay, we have three major headings in this then of what we just read. And we'll just uh, break these down. So the first one is what we call blessings from the God our Father. And that'll be in verses 4 through 6. Then we have blessings from God the Son. That's in verses 7 through 12. That's what Randy talked about today in, in a sermon. And then we have blessings from the Holy Spirit, which is uh, verses 13 and 14. So we got this broken down in three pieces, all three uh, parts of the God here, here. Blessings from God the Father, blessings from God the Son, Blessings from the God, uh, from the Holy Spirit. From the God our Father, number one, verse four, he has chosen us, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. Okay, here's the marvelous doctrine of election. You've heard of election, right? If you've been in church with any type of Bible preaching, you've heard about election. And the author phrases it this way when he wants to discuss election. Try to explain election, and you will lose your mind. Try to reason it away, and you may lose your soul. Salvation begins with God, not with man. Key concept. Why do, how do we know that? How do we know it does not begin with man? Well... Romans has a few things to say about that. 
Again, this is Paul. Romans chapter 3, starting with verse 9. What then? Are we Jews better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin as it is written. And then he goes through a dialogue of the depravity of mankind. Okay? Just Here's the next two verses, though. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. So man by himself, the sinner left by himself, does not seek God unless it's prompted. The sinner by himself does not seek out the Lord. Romans is clear on that, and other areas of Scripture are clear on that. What a depressing, demoralizing, but realistic state of mankind. None none is righteous, not one. Last week I talked about my mother, who I think was the most godly person I know. And yes, I have to admit, even she was sinful. It's hard to say that, but she was. But yes, it's a depressing state of mankind that no one seeks the Lord by himself. Okay? So then if, we, if, if mankind doesn't seek the Lord, how does it happen? Well, we have a really neat story on that. This is a super story. I love this story. Um, starts out in chapter, uh, excuse, starts out in Luke in chapter 19, and I'm going to tell the story, and you recognize the story, but it really is how God seeks the sinner. The sinner doesn't seek God; God seeks the sinner. In other words, it's God initiated. Okay. So watch this. 19. He entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. He was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. I'm glad I'm six foot two. My father-in-law is like this tall right in here, right? My new daughter-in-law is even shorter yet. I think she's barely over five foot. Like I said, it's not the size of the package. There's dynamite in it, right? But he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. Who orchestrated that turn of events? Zacchaeus? We'll get to that. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. When they saw it all, when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone to be a guest of a man who is a sinner. Imagine that. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. My guess is he has. Otherwise, he wouldn't say that. And Jesus said to him, now this is the key verse that talk that, about this concept here. Today, salvation has come to this house. Salvation. Regeneration. Born again. 
He also is a son of Abraham. Zacchaeus, the wicked little tax collector, is now a son of Abraham. And here is Jesus just, I mean, laying it out there. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. It's not man-initiated. It is God-initiated. God seeks the sinner. The mystery of divine sovereignty sovereignty, and human reaction, responsibility, whatever word you want to put into that slot, I'll use the word responsibility today, will never be solved in our lifetime. But I can tell you this, both are taught. Both are in the Bible, both are true, and both are essential. But the emphasis here is that God seeks the sinner. Knock, and the door shall be open. Okay, verse number five. Oh, let's go back to this. Why did I lose this? See, I shouldn't do this. I, lo- I, I need to stick my, there we go, got it. Verse number five. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Okay, adoption. This one I had a very tough time with. What does adoption mean? I had a sister who adopted a child. Okay, I've seen a lot of adoptions. I know what adoption means in the terms that we see in our society today. I know what adoption is. What is this kind of adoption? Is this different than what I see? Well, What's that show where you get to call for one uh, open line? Uh, what, what's the name of that show? Who wants to be a millionaire? Right. So you get an open line. You get a question. Open line. So I had one phone call I could make, and yes, I called Pastor Randy on this one yesterday. <laughs> had one line open, right? So it really has to do kind of with this idea of order of salvation. Okay. So if you read John Piper, Desiring God, or any other credible um, believer, teacher, they would talk about the order of salvation. I'm not going to get this exactly right because different things I've seen use different verbiage, terminology, blah, 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 but it goes something like this, okay? Election, or first basically of the gospel call. Election, and then the gospel call. Someone hears the, the, uh, the good news, right? We're going to preach the good news. Someone hears the good news, right? Regeneration. I'm going to talk about regeneration today because our author talks about regeneration as basically the main piece that you become a member of the family of God. Conversion, justification, I tried to justify my actions when I was younger. This is a different one, justification, adoption, sanctification, which means becoming more like 
Jesus Christ. And the idea of sanctification, you read in Peter, talks about, um, basically he gives a list of the fruits of the Spirit, right? And if you have these qualities in what he uses the verbiage, in increasing measure. What is increasing measure? It means you're increasing. It means you're improving, right? Increasing measure. Sanctification, increasing measure of these Basically, fruits of the Spirit, right? So yesterday I checked, my brotherly kindness was a 7.3 out of a scale of 10. So hopefully I get that to a 7.6 by next year. I don't know how you measure it exactly, but you see it. Sanctification, perseverance, glorification. When you pass, when you die. Okay, so election, gospel call, regeneration, Conversion, justification, adoption, sanctification, perseverance, glorification. There's the 12-step process, or whatever you want to call it, right? So in that is adoption. And I think it's important to know all those so that we understand adoption by itself. Otherwise, we might think it's more than it really needs to be. So in here, though, he's talking about a dual meaning of adoption. First of all, the present, and then also a future. So a present tense and a future tense, right? First of all, we're predestined to obtain beforehand, to predetermine, right? And then uh, the author really talks about regeneration as the key into the entrance of, of, of the family of God. And I think we need to know that first before we talk about adoption. Okay? Probably one of the best ways that we could, I'll uh, say, read on this, right, would be uh, Jesus' conversation with a man named Nicodemus. In the first, cha- uh, excuse me, the third chapter of John, kind of goes through that story, and Jesus kind of lays it out here with Nicodemus. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, now why did he come to him by night? Really? Because I'm guessing Nicodemus saw that Jesus might have been a little bit special. And instead of joining his comrades and criticizing and, 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 seek and just having just pure unbelief, I can't tell here for sure if Nicodemus is uh, genuine in his approach, but I'm guessing there's some level of that in there. There was a man of, of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. Okay, well, that's good. For no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. Good job, Nicodemus. He found that out. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. There's regeneration right there. Born again, regeneration. To regenerate. To become something different. Okay? Bullfrogs and butterflies, right? Bullfrogs and butterflies, they were something else, and now they're, now they're something completely new. When I was a kid, we used to walk the ditches on these milkweeds, and you had these little caterpillars, right? So we'd go steal them, 
grab them, and then we'd take them into the house and get a big jar, put a cap on it, pound a bunch of holes in it so they could breathe, put like milkweed in there, and they'd attach themselves to the lid of the jar and hang down and form a what? Cocoon. And then after a while, after a while, they would break out of the cocoon, and all of a sudden the caterpillar is a butterfly. Wow, that is amazing. Regeneration, to become born again. Something new, something you were not before, right? He cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus, taking the completely literal, said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Foolish, right? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Obviously, he doesn't get it. But Jesus answered again, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So Jesus is laying out that regeneration is the doorway to the kingdom of God to be born again, to be renewed, right? That's what he's talking about. And that's why I want to emphasize that adoption can be looked at possibly a little bit differently. Adoption is an act of God by which he gives his born ones, remember we talked about the sequence or the uh, process of salvation, born ones, an adult standing in the family. Regeneration has already happened. Being born again has already happened. An act of God by which he gives his born ones an adult standing in the family. It also has a future aspect to it. How does it have a future aspect? Romans uh, chapter 8, of course... Probably the pinnacle of the gospel would be Romans chapter 8, 22. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly, groaning, yearning, groan as... We eagerly, we wait eagerly for adoption as sons. So there's a future aspect to this as well. So adoption has your benefits now, but it has great benefits in the future. As is, Paul, Paul talks about to the Romans. Let me read that again. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly, Yearning for. I groan, yearn, I want, I desire, I see this, I vision. Okay? Groan inwardly as we eagerly, or excuse me, we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons. So that's a future aspect to it right there. A future aspect as well as a present. Let's go to verse 6. He has accepted us. Okay, verse 6 says, To the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In the, in the beloved. In other words, he has, 
He has accepted, okay? He has accepted us. The big point here, we can't make ourselves acceptable to God at all. There's nothing we can do to make ourselves acceptable to God. But by his grace, we are made accept, make, we, he makes us accepted in Christ. That's the only way we have accept. Human example of this. Uh, the author gives a great example of this. Um, I'll just read it. It's not that long. Because of God's grace in Christ, we are accepted before him. Paul wrote Philemon to encourage him to accept his runaway slave. Onesimus, using the same argument. If he owes you anything, I'll pay for it. Receive him as you would receive me. That's paraphrased, but the parallel is very easy to see. I'll read this again. Because of God's grace in Christ, we have a... We are accepted before him. It's because of God's grace. It's because of in Christ that we're accepted before him. There's no other way we can stand before him. Paul's writing to Philemon to encourage him to accept his runaway slave. Onesimus, who ran away, obviously, right? Using the same argument, he says this. If he owes you anything, I'll pay for it. Well, what's the parallel? If you owe anything, if you have a debt in your sins, right? Jesus says, I'll pay for it. I got it. The tab's on me. I will pay for it. Receive him as you would receive me. Let's keep going on. Blessings from God the Son. Okay, now we're going to talk about that. So 7a, first part of 7. In him we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. We'll start with just the first part. In him we have a redemption through his blood. What does it mean to be redeemed? He has redeemed us. Okay? Redeemed means to basically to purchase and to be set free. You're bought. You're bought. You paid, paid a price for you. Okay? In the Roman Empire, and I didn't realize this until I did this research, and plus the help of my book here we have that there were 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire and they were bought and sold like furniture think about the slavery in our America how grotesque it is right bought and sold like furniture but someone could purchase you right and then set you free. So there's a purchase, and then a set free. So you've been redeemed, right? So if I'm the slave owner, if I'm the slave owner, this slave has economic value to me. Because they're doing work for me, and as a result, there's economic value to me. So if that slave's going to disappear, you're going to pay me. Because I need, I got lost revenue if that person leaves, Right? But you could purchase a slave and then set them free. Okay, same concept, right? Well, what was the purchasing price here when we talk about our souls and the idea of salvation? Well, the purchase was his, the price, I should say, was his own blood. That's in 1 Peter chapter 1. His blood was the purchasing price. 
And that's why I come up with the phrase, how beautiful is the blood of Christ. How precious is the blood of Christ. It's the purchasing price. What are we free from? If we have been purchased and set free, what are we free from? Well, here's a couple ideas. Free from the law. Paul gets to that heavily in Galatians chapter 1. We are free from the law. We're free from slavery and sin. That's in Romans 6. Slavery and sin could be addiction. We're addicted to sin. We like our sin. We love our sin. We cling to it. Free from the power of Satan. Well, he has delivered us from the domain, this is in Colossians, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness, delivered, delivered, free from, delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom placed somewhere else of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, there's that word again, and here's the next one, and forgiveness of sins. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness, transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. In him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So the idea of redeemed, all right? Part B of that uh, 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 number seven, in him we have redemption through his blood, and here it is, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. We talked last week about how Paul was the worst, the utmost of sinners, right? The most undeserving. And his, we, it was a demonstration of Christ's perfect patience with Paul as an, as an example for anybody else who would dare to believe. If we've been forgiven of our sins, why do we cling to unforgiveness ourselves so easily? We hang on to unforgiveness ourselves, and we know the verse about the master who forgave the debt was owed to him. I understand that whole verse. One of the books I'm going to I'm going to highly, 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 highly recommend to you is a book called "The Bait of Satan." I read it about a year ago. My wife read it. It is a sanctifying book. I will tell you. And it's basically the whole idea of we as sinners that cling to unforgiveness. In other words, we hold offense. And we don't demonstrate that necessarily outwardly, but we just hold and cling to stubbornly this idea of holding offense or unforgiveness to somebody else. When God has forgiven us a skyward multitude of sins, I recommend you read the book. You can buy it online, I'm sure. The Bait of Satan. One piece from that book. It's a parallel. It's a a parable, right? It talks about the settlement west as the People go from, you know, out the, to the settlement out to the western part of the United States. And it's a story, right? Understand the story. But it gives across the point of people who, how, how we all 
cling to this idea of bitterness of the group people around us, right? And so the story goes like this. As these towns become settled, right, there's people who strap in, they settle here, some keep on going, they settle in other towns, some keep on going, the West is settled, right? Back then, they all had lever-action guns, like the riflemen, you know, like that. Well, there's a one town that there's an older gentleman, a wise gentleman, who is sitting outside of town, and as people come in, he'd greet them. And so, and so what would happen would be, as these settlers would come in, they'd say, hey, uh, you've been here for a while. What are the people in this town like? And he'd say, what are the people like in the town you just left? Oh, they're bad. They're terrible. Greedy, just rotten people, and didn't like them, and blah, blah, blah. He said, well, the people in this town are just like that. Oh, thanks for saving us from that settling in the wrong town. We don't, we don't want to do that, right? So, of course, you can see where the story is going, right? So the next group would come by, hey, What's what the people in this town like? And the old man would say, what were the people like in your town? Oh, they're great. They're wonderful. They're super. They're kind. They're generous. We didn't want to leave. We just had to leave for more opportunity. He said, the people in this town are just like that. Get the picture? What do we cling to? The people around us, right? What, 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 why do we cling on to unforgiveness? But he's talking about here the forgiveness of our sins, which is a massive price that we simply cannot pay. Verses 8 through 10, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. God's gracious design is for us to see his purpose, redemption and forgiveness and his glory. We'll keep moving here. 11 and 12. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Okay, let's talk a little bit about inheritance. What is an inheritance? I received an inheritance from my, my both my parents are passed away. I received a monetary inheritance from my parents. A lot of you will too. I received a much, much richer inheritance from my parents in much deeper ways. My, both of my parents were believers. I had a great childhood. I'll just say that. My siblings, ah, that could have been better. I could have been better, right? Um, but I had a great childhood. My parents, and uh, I received from them an inheritance of, inheritance of this. From my dad, hard work. Oh my goodness, he worked hard. All three of us boys have been successful, right? I will, I, it pinpoints, it goes directly back. And my brother Scott and Bob would both say this, even though they had other issues with them, maybe possibly, would both say this, it goes directly back to Jim Birch. He taught hard work, that is for sure. Hard work and grit and resolve. My dad was a believer, and so was my mom. And they were an example to me, that inheritance that you receive is just priceless. It's invaluable. You cannot, you cannot put a value on it. First Peter describes this. Better explains it. Okay? Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, 
to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. This is what he's talking about. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again, again, instigated by God, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. That's the inheritance you receive. Kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This is inheritance. Imperishable. All your monetary inheritance will be perishable. Trust me. Undefiled, pure, and holy, and righteous, and unfading, does not fade. Those descriptions are vivid. Okay? That is our inheritance. We received inheritance. Lastly, blessings from God the Holy Spirit. He has sealed us, and that's in verses 13 and 14 here, 13. In him you have also heard, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. That's basically the entire process of salvation is given in this verse. Okay, how has a sinner become a saint? He hears the gospel, he believes, and the sealing implies ownership or completeness of transaction. Okay, we have been sealed. Verse 14, he has given us an earnest. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of of his glory. Earnest money. He's made a deposit. Okay? I, in 2001, I was driving home on Highway 11. I was a one mile from Gerritsen, and I saw this little sign in the ditch. And it said, for sale. That's the first time I saw that. I think it was probably in October. So I knew the realtor, so I go into Gerritsen, I go home, I call him on the phone, I said, what's that sign out there? He says, three acres for sale that you can put a house on. I said, where can we meet? And when and how soon? Well, I could be in my office in 10 minutes. I wrote a check out. What was that? Earnest money. I didn't pay him the whole thing up front. I paid him earnest money, which sealed it, right? A down payment for the guarantee of the final purchase. I bought three acres for a thousand bucks of earnest money. Okay? Here... Here, the Holy Spirit, right, is God's first installment to guarantee the final transaction, redemption, the redeeming of our souls, almost like an engagement ring. Final thoughts. True riches come from God. All these riches come by God's grace, and here's the keywords I put it in all capital letters in my notes, and for God's glory, not ours. Everything is for God's glory. We are here created for his glory. 
It's not like a restaurant. I'll take God who does this for me and that for me and that for me. No, that's not how it goes. We are here for God's glory, including suffering. Purpose, it's not ours. And here's, the, here's a, a good kicker for this to end it, up, end it off, and I'll close this in prayer. These riches are only the beginning. In other words, as the uh, phrase goes, but wait, there's more. I'll close in prayer.